Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Stephen Siegel, coming to you from San Diego, and we are interviewing Professor David Moon. David Moon is the author of a new book. He is a history professor at the University of York in the UK and he holds an honorary professorship at University College London. Professor Moon is a specialist on Russian, Eurasian, and transnational environmental history. He began his career as a visiting professor at the University of Texas at Austin at the southern end of the Great Plains, and he completed his new book as a visiting professor at Nazarbayev University, Kazakhstan, in the heart of the Eurasian steppes. His book today explores the connections between these two regions, and it is his fifth book. He'd like to thank the Leverhulme Trust for their support. His book is called The American Steps, The Unexpected Russian Roots of Great Plains Agriculture from the 1870s to the 1930s, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor Moon, to our broadcast today. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast, Stephen. I want to start with a question about motivation, um, David, because this is such a, a fascinating book paralleling two steps, and you talk so much about the transfers um, between two countries, the United States and, and, and Russia, or really Canada, the United States, and Russia. So what is it that motivated you to write the book? I think answering this question requires a very brief summary of my academic career and also pointing to elements of chance. I trained as a historian of Russia back in the 1980s at the University of Birmingham in England and at Leningrad State University. For the first half of my career, I was a social historian of the Russian peasantry and serfdom, but I became interested in environmental history and I decided for a my next big project to work on the environmental history of Russian colonization of a region of the empire. Then I had to think, well, what region do I choose? So I thought about a number of regions, started to read up. Here, Chance stepped in. I was appointed to a post at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Glasgow is twinned with Rostov-on-Don in southern Russia. The universities had an exchange agreement, so it was easy for me to arrange to visit to meet people, to conduct a pilot project, to get further funding, to do research there. So I chose the steppe region, initially the European part of the steppe region, although I knew there was a very important part of the region further to the east. I also visited for research the North Caucasus, the Volga region, southern Ukraine. This led to my previous book, which is an environmental history of the steppe region, which I called The Plough That Broke the Steps, published by Oxford University Press in 2013. 
But while I was working on this book, I started reading environmental histories of the Great Plains in North America. I was aware there were similarities between the two regions, both were semi-arid grasslands settled by outsiders who displaced the indigenous populations and replaced their ways of life. I met American historians at conferences, in particular conferences of the European Society of Environmental History, for example, Jeff Kunfer, now at the University of Saskatchewan, Don Worcester, uh, forest historian Stephen Anderson. Talking to these and other American scholars, they pointed me not just to parallels and comparisons between the two regions, but to direct connections. Here, another element of chance, it's already been mentioned that long before this, I began my career as a visiting professor at the University of Texas in Austin. It had always been at the back of my mind to identify a Russian-American research project to work on. So I decided I'd write an article on these parallels and connections. I was fortunate to get a short-term grant from the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C. I started to visit the Great Plains at that time, but I realized this was a far larger project, a much bigger topic. And thanks to further funding, American fellowships, more funding from the Levy-Hume Trust, I embarked on this book, which is how I ended up on this podcast today. Yeah, it, it seems to me that the project became much bigger than you had initially imagined it. Is that true geographically as well as intellectually in, in terms of the methodology and, and really in terms of the field research that you did? I think, uh, yes, I began to think not just about these two regions, but also globally. So this is really part of a much much broader global story, part of European colonization, settlement, exploitation of semi-arid grasslands in continental interiors. At the back of my mind, I've always had the ambition to include the Pampas in South America. I don't know if I'll ever embark on that topic. <laughs> There's many more examples. They're part of the story of the environmental history of European colonialism around the globe and exploitation of resources, displacement of indigenous peoples. Right. And you say um, in covering this period between the 1870s and the 1930s that you focus a lot on transfers and institutions. Yes. Um, and I, I think that the transfers are, are one of the great insights of the book um, the institutions are in many ways state-run, government, scientific. Could you talk a little bit about both of those things, the, the transfer element and the institutional element? I think this is so important to the new trends in transnational history and environmental history in particular. Yeah, the transfers, perhaps I should outline briefly uh, what the transfers were. Uh, I talk about transfers of people, migrants who moved from Eurasia, from the Russian Empire, from the Soviet Union to North America. There are two important groups of these. One are farmers who moved from the Eurasian steppe to North America from the 1870s. Many of these were ethnic Germans, including Mennonites, who, as many of your podcast listeners will know, uh, this is a, a relatively small Protestant group, a group of churches, they're pacifists, so they're always trying to get away from compulsory military service. They're prosperous people, they're enterprising people who engage in agriculture as well as other activities. They moved 
from southern Ukraine to Kansas, Nebraska, up and down the Great Plains in the 1870s. Another group of people, not just from the um, Eurasian steppe, were Jewish people escaping persecution in late Tsarist Russia. Many ended up in North America. They're important for my story because many were or subsequently trained as scientists and they, of course, knew Russian. So they're able to help facilitate uh, transfers of science, technology, ideas in their new home country in North America. The second transfer I'm concerned about is plants, agricultural crops. I could have chosen many, but I decided to focus instead on wheat, in particular types of hard wheat that grown in the Great Plains. These were introduced from the steppe region, both by Mennonite settlers and by scientists, plant explorers working for the US Department of Agriculture in the late 19th and very start of the 20th centuries. These types of wheat grew well in the steppe region where the climate is similar to, but slightly harsher than that of the Great Plains. And both Mennonite farmers uh, importers, businessmen, and American plant scientists realized if they could survive in the most extreme part of the steppes, they could thrive, they could cope with any fluctuations of climate in the Great Plains. One of the explorers, plant explorers Mark Carlton, traveled as far as today's northern Kazakhstan to get hardy types of wheat to introduce into the Great Plains. My th- yeah. Sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to take you through the transfers just to introduce them. Uh, The next transfer is the science of understanding the soils of these grasslands. The reason they're so attractive to settlers, to farmers, is the soil is very fertile. How you understand these soils is very important because then you can devise ways of using them sustainably, using them without depleting the fertility. Soil science, modern soil science, was devised in the Eurasian steppe by the Russian scientist Dr. Chaifer's colleagues in the late 19th century. This was transferred, this understanding of soils was transferred to the similar soils of the Great Plains. Next transferred, I will pause after this one, the technique of planting belts of trees to shelter land from the, from the wind. These are windy plains, windy environments. The wind can whip up dry soil, blow it away in dust storms. The Dust Bowl is the most famous in the Great Plains and one of a whole series of episodes in both these regions. Planting trees is difficult. Russians, other inhabitants of the worked out ways of doing this. This technique is transferred to North America. Could you give us some idea about the research in climatology? I think this is especially important in the so-called New Western history. So what was the climatological research of specialists, both in the American and Russian case? And and I guess one of the big questions in the book is, did the American specialists draw on the Russian tradition and how? Right. Thanks for asking about this, Stephen, because this is one of the uh, topics I considered for a case study for, for the book. Did American climate scientists learn from Russian experience. Both these regions had similar climates. They're semi-arid, periodic droughts, high winds. Scientists, climatologists in both countries were trying to understand how the climates worked. 
However, I discovered no real evidence that Americans had learned from Russian climatological scientists in this period, so I didn't include it in the book. The processes are very similar. The climate, the climate changes were, and perhaps to some extent still are, cyclical. You get periods of dry years followed by periods of wetter years. You get cyclical changes. Trying to identify and understand these cycles was extremely important. Russian climate scientists were trying to do this in the late 19th centuries. American scientists trying to do this, but they don't seem to have learned from each other, so they don't make it into the book. Right. And I'm, I'm actually remembering a lot of the stereotypes of the Great Plains that Americans had in the 19th century. Um, you know, of course, that I, I work in um, in Greeley, Colorado at the University yes. of Northern Colorado. So people people think of this as closer to the mountains, but it's actually close to the plains. Um, and in the 19th century, there was a very deep stereotype that these lands and the plains were unsuitable for agriculture to such an extent that it was called a desert or yes. the American Great Desert. Um, and I wonder, you know, as someone who's done so much transnational research, how does that sort of intersect with the scientific understanding of the planes? Do you see that scientists, and we'll move into some of your characters, but yes. do you see them still imbibing these stereotypes about the Great Plains? Because it's, it's, a, it's a long and enduring idea. Yes, the idea of the Great Plains as a great American desert, I think, really takes off what, in the early decades of the 19th century. This changes in the second half of the 19th century. And I think there are political, other wider contexts which to understand this. Uh, from the 1860s, there's the start of large-scale settlement of the Great Plains. 1862, you get the Railroad Acts, where railroad companies are given tracts of land right across the United States to finance building the railroads, the transcontinental railroads. They've got to sell this land to support uh, the cost of building the railroad. So they promote it as valuable, fertile agricultural land, and they sell it to settlers including some of the Mennonite settlers who moved from southern Ukraine to Kansas. They were canny farmers. They got a good deal and they got good land. So railroad companies are promoting it. This is the time when Kansas, Nebraska, later the Dakotas, are admitted to the Union of States. They are promoting their states, so they're attracting settlers. The Homestead Act, 1862, the federal government sets aside land. It's taken away from indigenous population. Native Americans invite settlers. They get title for the land if they stay there, work there and improve it. So the federal government has an interest in promoting the settlement. The climate, we're going through a cyclical change in climate. We're moving into wetter years in the 1860s and 1870s. So settlers flood in. Climate reverses a bit in the 18, late 1880s into the 1890s, drier years, western part of the plains start to lose population. So yes, the idea is this is a fertile land of opportunities promoted by a number of interests, railroad companies, state governments, federal government, and it's part of the manifest destiny of settling white settlers right across right. North America. Right, right. Um, could you give us an idea of how you decided to organize the book into parts and chapters and perhaps how your 
understanding of, of Russian history, especially in Russian environmental history, yeah. as a field which has really taken off, I would say, in the past 10 or maybe 15 years. Um, how, how did your knowledge of this, I remember several articles you had written, one in the Russian Review in 2010 about, about the step. How, how did you how did you decide to organize the book? What are the chapters and, and what does your previous background do to inform that? The book falls into two parts. The first part I describe is context. I was very conscious that I was writing or hoping to reach different audiences. Both historians of Russia, Eurasia might take an interest in a transnational study. I hope also to reach historians in North America environmental historians, agricultural historians more broadly, perhaps historians of science. So I thought these are people coming from all different backgrounds. I'm going to need to explain the context. So I have a brief chapter on settlement, describing the process of settlement and dispossession of the indigenous population. I realized in analyzing the transfers, there's a whole series of barriers Americans, if they're in the late 19th century, if they're looking to learn from somewhere else about how to cultivate the Great Plains, Russia would not be a very good and obvious example to look to. It's well known for periodic famines. Americans engaged in famine relief in the steppes in the early 1890s, again the 1920s. What else is Russia known for in late 19th century America? It's known for persecution of the Jewish population thousands and thousands and thousands of whom migrate to the United States to make new lives and describe their experiences in Tsarist Russia. Russia is also known for having a very strong opposition to Tsarist autocracy. Some of the opponents uh, resorted to terrorism, and some terrorists did lecture tours around Western Europe, North America, uh, doing a black propaganda on the Tsarist government. It's also known for the Siberian exile system, the opponents of the regime who weren't on lecture tours in Western Europe, North America, were in exile in Siberia. This is not a country you're going to learn from. So overcoming this barrier, there's competition in the world grain market. Both these regions, the steppes, Great Plains, very fertile agricultural land. You can grow wheat, you can export it. The two countries, by the end of the 19th century, by the eve of the First World War, they're the two leading competitors in the world market for grain exports. Competition is going to be a barrier to learning from each other. Americans simply didn't know about Russian agricultural sciences. One of the reasons is most of them did not know Russian. There'd been exchanges of scientific literature since the 1860s. They could have read the Russian scientific literature in the Library of Congress, but as they couldn't read Russian, they didn't do so. Mm. Right. These Russian Jewish immigrants are important because they provide people scientific training, language, knowledge of the language, and they can do so. And then after the revolution, suspicion of communism. But then look at how these barriers were overcome. There's travelers to both recognize similarities between the two regions. I've got many, many examples. General William Tecumseh Sermon took a break, took a break from uh, commanding U.S. armed forces on the Great Plains in the 1870s, visited Russia, traveled across the steppes. He thought he was in Kansas. Many, many others see the similarities. Some start to realize perhaps you can learn from each other's experience. I've already spoken about immigrants, Mennonites, ethnic German farmers, uh, Russian Jews escaping persecution. Russians study Great Plains agriculture. Then belatedly, Americans start to study steppe agriculture. 
the American consul in Odessa, Heenan, he studied uh, steppe agriculture, realized there was competition in the first decade of the 20th century at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I is uh, a Russian Jewish scientist, uh, Isaac Rabinov, to study steppe agriculture. There's contacts between scientists. They meet at world's fairs, international meetings. They start exchanging publications. So by a whole series of ways, these barriers are overcome and we get a whole process of interaction of learning from each other. But my book focuses on Americans learning from Russians and other peoples of the Eurasian steppe. Right. I, I want to talk to you about that a little bit more. I know in, in chapter one, you're dealing with the Great Plains as a comparatively as a comparison to today's Kazakhstan and the eastern steppes in southern Siberia. So not just in terms of climate, but also to the extent where you're talking about settlement in a, in a modern way. Um, I remember at one point you talked about the settlement of the steppe region in European Russia. So how does this compare to the settlement in the Eurasian steppe? And the conversion of the conversion of land, the conversion to arable land specifically. I think there's both a similar process. We've got Europeans, Euro Americans moving into peripheral lands from their, their the centers of their states, where they're used to coming from areas with more rainfall, less fertile soil, more trees, where they can engage in the sort of farming they do, raising crops, keeping some livestock, mixed farming. In both regions, they move into territories with very different climates. They're much drier, recurring droughts, but much more fertile soil. They have to learn new ways to use the land. They can't just rely on their existing experience, existing techniques. What they don't do, and there's fairly obvious reasons, is learn from indigenous knowledge. The Indigenous peoples are leading mobile lives based on hunting or herding animals, so Plains Indian, steppe nomadic peoples. They deal with the shortages of moisture by moving around. Their ways of life are better attuned to the environment, but they support smaller populations. You can produce much more calories per acre by growing grain than by keeping livestock. Why don't the settlers learn? From indigenous knowledge, because at this time, given the prevailing ideologies, the racist ideologies, and these indigenous peoples are seen as being somehow scare quotes inferior or scare quotes backward. So they'd largely disregard their knowledge. They learn by trial and error, seeing what works, what doesn't work. A big, big difference is the settlement of the Eurasian steppes by outside farmers takes off in the 18th century. The agricultural outside settlement of the Great Plains takes off after the end of the Civil War, so from the 1860s. So farmers in the Eurasian steppe, the Russian government, Russian scientists, have got a century start. So if they chose to do so, Americans right. could learn from prior experience in the Eurasian steppe. Processes are similar, one's ahead right. of the other. Right. So who are the main characters in the book? Aside from the grasslands itself, who are your who are your people, or what are your characters? Yeah, one of the 
Yeah, thank you for saying the, the grassland. They're the main characters in the book. <laughs> as, as, as they should be. <laughs> as they should be, yeah. The, a lot of the research I did was not just reading scientific papers, scientific publications, but also reading letters, diaries, uh, more private correspondence, private papers of my main characters. So I got to know some of these people and I got to learn what sort of personalities they were. And I did feel that perhaps it's biased by the type of sources I chose. It's the personalities, the people who recognize the similarities, recognize they, they could learn from each other, uh, are the key to understanding the story, as well as the input by our two grassland regions. Uh, I've run through a few examples of personalities. Bernard Walkentine is a Mennonite. He moves from southern Ukraine to Kansas in the 1870s. He's one of the leaders of the migration. His father was a miller, so he knew about grain. He realized the grain, the hard red winter group that grew in the steppes, could also thrive in Kansas. He chose the land they bought from the railroad company. He knew the conditions were better than back home in southern Ukraine. He's a prosperous, enterprising, hardworking young man, works hard to build his new life, new life for his family and his community in Kansas. One of the people he met was an American crop scientist called Mark Carlton. Also, well, he's originally from Ohio, but he's brought up and trained in Kansas. In the dry years of the 1890s, Carlton noticed that the Mennonites' wheat was growing well and thriving, when wheat grown by other settlers who had no previous experience in this environment, their crops were failing. So Carlton, Walkentine, do a series of studies of different types of crops, different types of wheat, different techniques of growing them. Carlton, also quite enterprising, he gets the U.S. Department of Agriculture to send him as a plant explorer, a crop explorer, to the Eurasian steppe. And he goes twice at the end of the 1890s, and he travels all over. He teaches himself Russian. He travels all over. He learns about how the railroad system works in the Russian Empire. Uh, Walkentin puts him in touch with his relatives in southern Ukraine, but Carlton goes all over. He travels as far as northern Kazakhstan to get very hardy, resistant crops. So Carlton, enterprising, hardworking man, trying to build his career. Uh, if I can run through other examples sure, of personalities. We'll, yeah. we'll come, and we'll come back to the chapters at one, once um, we've sure. got your personalities, sure. Sure. Um, in the soil science story, um, I've written elsewhere about Vasily Dokachayev, one of the founders of modern soil science. Uh, he developed a new understanding of soils through studying different layers in soil profiles during field work in the steppe region. They're trying to understand the soil so they can use it more effectively. He writes about this. He trains a new generation of soil scientists. One of them, Konstantin Glinka, writes a book in German on the Russian soil science to bring the new science to international attention. Meanwhile, in the United States, and this is the one the anti the anti-hero of the soil science section, Milton Whitney, head of American government soil science for the US Department of Agriculture, he launches a soil survey, but he uses outmoded techniques. It's a superficial study of the top layers of the soil, instrument soil physics, the size of the particles, etc. 
the Russians have a much broader understanding of soils, which other people around the world are gradually uh, paying attention to and learning from. Whitney is resistant to this. He wants to put a stop to it. He fires one of his subordinates because he started reading about the Russian work. And he points <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because that's just that's I guess unsurprising, but also some somewhat <laughs> funny. Yeah, this idea, uh, this idea of backwardness as a barrier to actually learning something about some about this. It, it, it yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just no, thank, my job. <laughs> Whitney was a good politician. He's good at getting funding from Congress for his soul survey, but he's a very bad scientist. Firing people who disagreed with him yeah. became the thing he's well known for. So he hires a geologist from Columbia, Missouri, called Curtis Marbet, thinks Marbet will be a safe pair of hands and he won't get distracted by Russian genetic soil science. But Marbet was a serious guy. He was careful, methodical. Tragically, his wife died. He moves to Washington, D.C., leaves his family with a housekeeper in Columbia, Missouri. He reads up on soil science. He reads Glinka's book. He can read German. He then goes and tests this in the Great Plains. Because he's left his family at home in Columbia, Missouri, this tragically for the family, but it creates a wonderful opportunity for a historian because his eldest daughter, Louise, became his confidant and they corresponded regularly. The correspondence is preserved in the uh, Missouri State Historical Society archives. She wrote a couple of uh, memoirs of her father, so then you get a real understanding of this of this person, this scientist, this man, as he grapps, has grappled his way towards a new understanding of soils, dealt with office politics. He makes notes about tense meetings with Whitney. And just one anecdote, when he's conducting his field work in the Great Plains, he wants to understand the topography of the land, because this is an important element in the Russian theory of soil formation. So he has a raised seat put at the back of their truck and he's driving around, or rather his colleague is driving the truck. He's sitting on the seat, elevated seat at the back of the truck. And he describes the reason letter how the young boys laughed at him as they drove by. But he also describes how he could observe what the land was like. And he learned to get an understanding through observation of the land. And he could identify the types of soil he could work out what type of soil, how deep it would be, from estimates of the rainfall. So careful, attention to detail, painstaking, hard work. He also asked his daughter to send him a new top coat because he had got lost on these explorations. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the relationships that you have between the scientists as, as, an, inter, as an intersection. Um, were there any particular pairings that that struck you as notable you had gone through a lot of correspondence and exchanges um, so it, it's interesting because there there are scientists who are multilingual but not reading Russian as you say yes. and yet they they seem to meet up at different places and, and encounter each other were, were there particular pairings or groupings that struck you as, as um, revelatory? Yeah, I think I'll go back to two men I've just recently mentioned. Uh, Curtis Marbert, American soil scientist, became head of the soil survey. Constantine Glinka, Russian student of Dokuchai, a soil scientist. 
Marbet reads his book, which he writes in German. Uh, Marbet then translates it. I think while grieving for his the death after the death of his wife, he spends many hours painstakingly translating Glinka's book from German into English while he's on his own in Washington, D.C., and writing to his daughter back in Columbia, Missouri. He also starts corresponding with Glinka and he writes almost with triumph when they first meet at the European Soul Science Conference in Europe in the early 1920s, and they clearly become quite close friends. They're not seeing each other very often, but they're corresponding. I saw some wonderful photographs of the two at uh, the first International Soul Science Congress in the United States in 1927. It's followed by an excursion all over North America to look at different types of soil, and there's photographs of Blinker and Marbet together. There's one, they're linking arms, and you can see they've developed quite a close personal relationship. Blinker was ill, quite sadly, he died shortly after this, but Marbet made sure that the royalties for his translation of Glinka's book, published in the United States, got back to Glinka's family in the Soviet Union. And in the late 1920s, you can imagine this was quite a complicated thing uh, to do. Um, I don't want to paint a picture. It's not just all happy people collaborating. There's also tensions. The most sure. compelling, perhaps the most annoying personality in the book was Raphael Zon. Oh, my He's goodness. A- I agree with you. Could you? Yeah. <laughs> Another an- anti-hero, a, a very obnoxious man. What, what, did, he, what did he do exactly? Uh, he was uh, he's born in Simbirsk in, in Russia. He becomes involved in... Uh, anti-government activities in the 1890s. He's worried about being conscripted into the Tsarist army because he's from a Jewish background. So he escapes first to Belgium, ends up in the United States, trains as a forester, becomes a protege of Gifford Pinchot, who's head of the Forest Service. Again, he's very hardworking, perhaps a stereotype of an immigrant, working hard, learning English, determined to build a career for him and his wife, who's also an immigrant uh, from Russia wanting to build his career uh, because he can read Russian. He knows that the Russians have made advances in forestry science, in particular forestry science, growing forest, growing trees in semi-arid grasslands. It's really hard to do, but they've been working on this for decades. So he thinks perhaps it'll help give him a leg up if he starts drawing on the work of Russian scientists, which he can read about. One of these, Georgi Vysotsky, later accused him of plagiarism, and there was an intemperate exchange in the Journal of Forestry in the early 1930s between Zahn and Vrysotsky over this. If I can speak a bit more about Zahn, because his personality, I think, is important in the key role he plays in the book, in my story. He's a mercurial, egotistical, impulsive, arrogant personality, he divided people. I think you clearly don't like him, Steve. And sometimes I like him, sometimes <laughs> you, I don't. You, just, you described him much more vividly than I ever could. <laughs> <laughs> Some yes. of his colleagues, for example, if, a long-standing colleague was an American forester called Carlos Bates. They clearly got on, and Bates would write articles for journals published, edited by Zon, saying, of course, we all loved old Zon. Other people hated him is co-director of the Shelterbelt Project in the 1930s, a much more professional, 
much more measured person called Paul Roberts. He did all the hard work, the administration, the organization. He found out that Zorna tried to cut him out of the history of the project and take all the credit. He was really angry about this. He spent several decades in his retirement writing a counter history, trying to write out Zorn. It made writing that chapter rather complicated. Zorn's personality, he was a head of a research station in St. Paul, Minnesota. He had worked in the Forestry Service in Washington, D.C. I think they moved him out there because they were tired of having him around the office just causing trouble. <laughs> it, it's, it's the proverbial FBI agent <laughs> who gets exiled to Arkansas. Yes. But... All yes. this came to the advantage of the Forestry Service in the early 1930s. You got the Depression, onset of the Dust Bowl, FDR is elected president. Whoever won the election, they were going to have massive cuts in federal government spending, and FDR wanted to use the money for relief projects, what became the New Deal. One of yeah. the areas of funding they were going to cut was research funding for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This would have closed down Zon's Forest Research Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. So the Forest Service chiefs, they think, good, we can get Zon onto this. So they charge him with interesting the new president in forestry research. FDR was interested. He grew trees on his estate at Hyde Park. He was interested in forestry. And so Zorn and some of the others, FDR's trying to deal, of course, with the unfolding catastrophe of the Dust Bowl. So they tell him, and they do try to deny this and backtrack subsequently, that the Russians had worked out you could change the climate of an entire region, such as a steppe region, by planting trees, by planting trees and shelter belts. And so this is what they do. FDR buys this. He gives support to the project. Congress don't buy it, but they're able to get funding through the emergency relief projects to research and to plant the shelter belts. So Zorn plays a key role in doing this. Also, he's convinced some of his colleagues in the Forest Service of the Russian research, which he's translated, he's published, he's written about. He's editor of the Journal of Forestry for several years, and he promotes Russian forestry research in the journal. So an example of scientists playing politician. There is a benefit in planting shelter belts to trees. The Forest Service, the U.S. Department of Agriculture still advocate this, but the benefits are much more local. They will change microclimates like the fields downwind from the belts of trees. But there's all sorts of costs and benefits to have to analyse. I think it's a bit like contemporary debates over wearing face masks. I don't think anyone is saying if we all wear face masks, it will solve the pandemic. Obviously, it won't. But there may be small local benefits from doing so. It may help a little bit. The shelter belts may help a little bit. Some of them are still there. Yeah, I want to I want to talk. A little bit more, since you mentioned the role of, of forestry, um, if I could pick your brain a little bit about the soil scientists. So I, I think you've covered very well for our listeners, um, the forestry and climatology. So my question about the soil science 
angle because you've written a lot about Dokuchayev in the past yeah. and you have two chapters on soil science in the book. Yeah. It's really about the trajectory of your narrative from the 1870s to the 1930s. Is there something significantly that changes with the Russian Revolution and how, or the Bolshevik Revolution? How does 1917, let's say, and the turn toward Soviet science and Soviet politics in, in the 1920s and then beyond change the outlook for a lot of these exchanges, for a lot of these people and personalities and, and how they relate to each other? What are, what are some of the kind of intellectual changes that you see, especially in the way soil science is practiced? And, and you can mention climatology and, and forestry as yeah. well, if you like. Yeah, this is an important, uh, very important question, important topic. Uh, applied research, agriculture, scientific research was considered important by the Tsarist government, by the imperial government, but they did not get lots of funding. A Russian soil scientist, a young man named Nikolai Tulaikov, spent a year when he's a graduate student in the United States, 1908-9. He's based out in Berkeley, working with Eugene W. Hilgard. He visits the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C., including the uh, Bureau of Soils. And he writes a series of articles for Russian periodicals about his year in the United States. And he describes the American Soil Survey, and he says they got far more staff than we have, far more scientists, a much bigger budget. But he says that they've not understood the basics of soil science. As scientifically, we are much more advanced in Russia. What happens after the revolution is with the emphasis on using science, technology to build a new socialist society, they do recognize they have a basis of scientific research in various fields in Russia. And so they put more funding into this. So the scientists do get more money. So they do build up soil science, other areas where the science has a value for the Soviet project. There is, of course, a downside to this. Early on, of course, we got the bourgeois specialists, people who trained before the revolution, who remain in post over the 1920s, over the 1930s. They gradually try to replace these with new proletarian scientists. So we get many of my scientists who have American international contacts in the 1930s. They start to disappear from the scene Tulaikov sadly fell victim to the terror in 1938. Others do so as well. So we get the more funding, uh, but politicization of this. Soil science becomes highly politicized. 1927, the first international congress of soil science is held in the United States. I mentioned before this enormous uh, excursion. They go all around North America, including Canada, to look at soils. This is also... Uh, funded by the Americans to promote American science, an area which they thought they had they were uh, had a good reputation around the world. The Americans recognize that it's actually the Russians, the Soviets, who are still among the leading uh, nations in soil science. They make a point of inviting a Russian delegation or Soviet delegation headed by Glinka. They are given pride of place uh, at the Congress, they have a special section in the Congress devoted to them. They arrange which them, uh, Russian Jewish emigres work with them as interpreters and guides. And they decide that the next Congress in three years' time, 1930, would be in the Soviet Union. 
and I read the paper's extensive discussion uh, in the Archive of the Academy of Sciences in Moscow about preparations for the Congress. And they say explicitly, Narcom Zem, Soviet uh, People's Commissary for Agriculture, emphasizes it has to be as good as the American one. So they allocate scarce resources to the promoting this Congress, to providing opportunities for international scientists to come and see Soviet science at its best. They have an excursion all around the Soviet Union in 1930 to look at soils, but also there to visit model collective farms, uh, tractor factories, everything that will show Soviet science, Soviet technology, the five-year plan at its best example. And many of the foreign scientists bought this. Curtis Marbit is extremely impressed by Soviet agriculture, Soviet agricultural sciences, and he becomes concerned that the Soviet grain output is going to become, a, again, a big competitor for American grain exports and the American grain trade. So soil science becomes a venue for playing out competition between the two sides. On the other hand, many of these scientists have known each other for years, for decades. They see as an opportunity to meet as scientists, to exchange ideas, to exchange publications. They get into debates. When the Soviet scientists are in North America, they have big debates about the American Chernozyom, the Black Earth of the Great Plains. Is it the same as the steppes? They have similar debates when they're traveling through the steppe region in the Soviet Union in 1930 when both scientists from both sides can see the other soil at first hand and study it in the company of their counterparts. So an area of continuity. One thing that I can carry on in this theme of continuity for a couple of moments. 1917, I would say, does not play a particularly large part in my book. What happens is because of the revolution and civil war, there's a breakdown for logistical reasons in communications between the end of 1917 and early 1921 when contacts are resumed. Uh, just a couple of examples of this. In December 1917, I came across a letter from Robert Regal, who's uh, a scientist working for the uh, Russian Ministry of Agriculture, to his counterpart, David Fairchild in Washington, D.C., They've been engaged for years in exchanges of seeds, of useful crops, scientific literature, experiences, arranging mutual visits. In December 1917, he writes to David Fairchild and he says, thank you for your latest um, thanks, uh, uh, package of seed samples, scientific literature. I'm very sorry, I can't send you the red clover seed you requested due to serious <laughs> disorders which have broken out in our country. He asked him to pass on his best wishes to American scientific workers that clearly realise that this is going to be the last time they will be in touch. Contact resumes 1921. The Soviet government, anxious to learn from American science, sends Nikolai Vavilov, leading Russian Soviet scientists, to re-establish contacts. Vavilov has already has plenty of friends, counterparts among the American scientific community. He travels all around the United States. And then an example of how scientific cooperation sometimes could come into conflict with the politics of the two countries. Vavilov was interested in, in um, the origins of cultivated plants. He was traveling around the world trying to find the wild ancestors of cultivated crops. He believed the ancestor of cultivated barley came from Abyssinia. 
He wanted to travel to Abyssinia to, 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 to study this, but he couldn't go because Abyssinia and the Soviet Union did not have diplomatic relations. So what does he do? He writes to his counterparts, his friend Harry Harlan in the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C., saying, can you help me get a visa to go to Abyssinia, today's Ethiopia, to go and study the barley? Harlan uh, drafts a telegram to Rastafari, Haile Selassie, regent of Abyssinia, to arrange the visit. The State Department find out and say, hey, we don't have diplomatic relations with these countries. If you do this as a government department, it will look like it will counter American foreign policy. So they have to go back on this. And this is just one of many, many episodes of cooperation. Normally, they manage to cooperate uh, in spite of political yeah. tensions I, down I, to the end of the 1930s. I, I, I find your mention of Avilov um, striking and, and also personal because when I did my first scientific exchange to Moscow, I, I worked and I studied at the Vavilov Institute um, for history of science and technology. And yes. there were, there were images, photos of him everywhere as, as an inspirational person for many Russians and Soviet scientists um, who had intervened to help and, and develop. Um, a lot of the scientific cooperation. So I, I'm fascinated by your story of, of transfer involving him. Um, I wanted to move to some of the big big points from your book for our listeners. So I, there, there are so many other things that, that we didn't get to completely. You have an absolutely fascinating chapter just about weeds. I think this is brilliant. <laughs> um, tumbleweeds. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the story of Oz as well. Um, you have a lot in your book about other crops, so not, not just wheat, but um, corn and barley and, and yeah. the history of, of colonial um, settlers and, and, of course, the Native American experience. And um, in Kansas, it's extremely important. So I wonder if we could move to some big takeaway points um, sure. from, from your book. Um, on transfers and, and their legacies. What, what do you think readers of your um, book should know? I think uh, a big point is uh, science, technology, ideas are not a Western innovation. These have happened throughout history in all different parts of the world. So be prepared to look for unexpected directions of exchanges, perhaps unexpected areas of innovation. I think that's probably one big point. There's a big literature now about the origins of modern science all around the world. Obviously, East South Asia, a major centers of scientific innovation long before the Western world has started to develop scientific ideas. The big point is look for unexpected areas for scientific innovation, scientific transfers, and how these are facilitated. Another big takeaway point is what the story is also about. And I don't write about this in a whole lot of detail in the book, and perhaps I would have done if I'd gone to work in Kazakhstan earlier, where there, of course, I decolonized my teaching by working in a former colony of the empire that I worked on. <laughs> Working with outstanding students, it really transformed right. my understanding. What I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Sorry, I'm glad that you mentioned Kazakhstan University and and your work there. You have been yeah. there for how many how many years now? I worked there for two years. I came back 
it was a bit complicated to imagine just a few weeks ago. I had I had uh, I was there for two years as a visiting professor, but what reinforced being there reinforced was that this story is also about a dispossession of indigenous peoples, disregard for indigenous knowledge and experience, and trying to grow crops in these semi-arid grasslands is still a very complicated endeavour and may or may not be the most effective way to work on these lands. Uh, my students what, in Kazakhstan had very strong views, for example, about the Virgin Lands Project. Virgin sure. Lands campaign. And, and with all the recent research on the history of famine and famine, yes. Sarah, Sarah Cameron, Cameron's work yes. in particular, yes. and um, the wonderful book by Maya Peterson, uh, Pipe yes. Dreams. I, in fact, it, had interviewed her a few months ago for this yes, podcast. Yes, a few weeks ago, yes. Um, so what are the books that you would recommend on your topic for others? I think a couple of examples. You mentioned how uh, Russian Eurasian environmental history really has taken off in recent years. Uh, Nicholas Breitvogel published a book. In fact, it's on your podcast, a collection of essays with some very strong examples by work, in particular by younger scholars, called Eurasian Environments, Nature and Ecology in Imperial Russia and Soviet History. So if you want to get an introduction to some of this really interesting work, look at Breitvogel's Eurasian Environments collection. In my chapter on wheat, I engage in a debate with uh, American scholar Courtney Fullilove, whose book, The Prophet of the Earth, The Global Seeds of American Agriculture, appeared a couple of years ago. So she read an article I'd written earlier on the wheat. She has different, I think, very stimulating ideas, and I then engage with her ideas uh, in my chapter on wheat. She emphasizes it's a global story. My story is a global story. So, take away yeah. point. Well, thank you. global stories. Thank, thank you, David. And, and I'm glad we finally ended up somewhere between Oz and Kazakhstan <laughs> in our, our yes. long journey together. Um, so, thank you very much for being on the New Books Network podcast today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. David Book. Uh, excuse me, David Moon, <laughs> David Moon, who's written a great book, is a history professor at the University of York in the UK and also at Nazarbayev University, Kazakhstan. His book is called The American Steps, The Unexpected Russian Roots of Great Plains Agriculture, 1870s to 1930s, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Thank you again for being with us. 